0: Welcome to Stocks of Scotch. Uh, We're recording this as of September 7th of 2020. And recently, Eric and I, we've been uh, off air. We've been talking a lot about IPOs and uh, along with some IPOs that might come out in the near future. And we thought this would also be good content to talk about in terms of uh, having you guys listen. So uh, um, a couple things we do. Uh, have a Facebook page, and you can find any updates from us there. Also, if you do like our content and the stuff we're putting out there, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us reach more people. Eric, uh, what are you drinking right now?
1: I am finishing my bottle of Toki, which I think a lot have been have survived over a lot of episodes, but I finally I finally drank it. It's uh, you know it's it's not a bad it's not a bad scotch for. Uh, you know, for forty dollars, um, and uh, I rather, I rather enjoyed this bottle. Um, and I've got to, and with that done, I'm going to start an open probably sometime in the second half of this uh, uh, second half of our show. How about you? What are you drinking?
0: You know, I am. Uh, I opened up the. Uh, I have this bottle that I've had for a while. It's a Gladfittic, uh eighteen year old bottle, and it is. It's been one of the. Kind of sweeter sweeter scotches that I like to drink from time to time uh, it's a small batch reserve, so I can't remember how much I bought it for though I, I want to say it was maybe a little bit over a hundred but um yeah it's a it's definitely a good bottle
1: outstanding and uh, and with that I finished my token and li- I pulled out my oven and it is a it is a pretty color so um <laughs> i've been I'm looking forward to this um so before we start, we have a disclaimer. Uh, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Uh, we are not investment advisors, and this is not investment advice. Um, we are not responsible for any of your losses. Uh, if you want to claim that we are, then uh, we'd love to take a piece of any, any gains you might have. Uh, just kidding, we don't want that either. Um, above all, do your own damn work. Before you invest in a stock or uh, you know put any money at risk, um, do your own damn work. And part of it could be talking to um, someone knowledgeable, uh, perhaps even a licensed investment professional, whatever the hell that term means. Um, never invest more than uh, uh, we're not making investment recommendations. If you happen to make an investment, make sure that uh, you never bet money that uh, you could not afford to lose. Uh, so um, all the Vegas rules apply here, uh, or for the classy folks, Atlantic City or Tunica or Bethlehem. There you go. And above all, as a final reminder, we are drinking hard liquor, so please remember that on anything we say. So, Cantor, what are what are we talking about this week?
0: Uh, so, we like we said, uh, we want to talk about IPOs. And uh, IPOs, they are basically the first time uh, public investors can start uh, going into. Buying shares of a company. Uh, do Do you want to talk about that, or should I Should I go ahead with that? Yeah, sure. Let me give a little bit of a, a little bit of basics. Right
1: in America, there are a lot of corporations, and the corporations are owned by people, or they have owners, and uh, a lot of these are privately owned. They're just owned by you know, it could be a local business. They're owned by like two or three people, or one person, or husband and wife, or what have you. Um, An IPO is when that company, which is privately owned, wants to be able to sell ownership in the company, so shares in the company, to the general public, um, and you know, as as they say, get access to the quote unquote capital markets. So now the company, um, you know, once you're uh, once you issue public stock, I mean, you've jumped through a lot of hoops to get there. Um, you can sell more stock if the company wants money, or the owners can sell more stock if they want to cash out. For it actually, it's also helped this process, also helpful in terms of their being able to um, you know, issue debt in order to, to borrow money. So, um, an IPO is just basically a process together, it is the initial public offering of stock. Um, and IPO is interesting. Um, you know, as we're going to talk about, there are, there are a couple of ways to get information on them. So, obviously, number one, they're in the headlines quite a bit, it's always a splashy headline. Um, you know, there, there are some ways to get information. Um, and, um, a lot of the, the companies, um, a lot of the multinational mega corporations who we all love, like, uh, Google, Facebook, um, you know, and Apple, uh, you know, well, Apple was a long time ago, but but Google and Facebook were more recent companies. So actually, you know, they more recently tapped the IPO market. And so, um, you know, if you had bought in at the Google IPO, it was like, I think it was like a hundred bucks and went to like 85 and now the stock's like 1700 or it was, so that's a almost a 20x return or facebook i think when ipo it was like um, i don't know how to make a number up but i think it was like 25 bucks now it's like 300 bucks and so that's like a you know 12x return um, you know so the, you know these are potentially ways which you know this was the first time which a member of the general public could have gotten um, a piece of the pie uh, buying into one of these and and there are you know in this is a more traditional there's some more untraditional ways to get into ownership of these companies even earlier. Um but you know that's why it's such a it, it's a it's a really big event. If you're at a company which has gone through an IPO, it's a big deal and it's a big celebration because a lot of work is required to get the company. Not just legal work and, and papers and making slide decks and spreadsheets, that kind of thing. But I mean there's a lot of organization building, um, a lot of professionalization, a lot of things to get you know, kind of get the company quote unquote IPO ready. So uh so that's that but you know at the same time uh ipos are not without risk i mean these are you know these companies have never been the public market so that alone is a risk um sometimes there are the companies are could be pretty interesting but maybe things don't pan out as well as uh, they say or you know maybe they do but the ipo price is too high and so there're always there's always inherent risk um and then on top of that you know again they they haven't been a public company they haven't been Disseminating information to public investors, um, you know, in a long consistent way, so you're getting the information for the first time, and so you know, there's there's risk in in not having, um, you know, in not, not really having the full deck of information that you might have with a, a quote unquote well seasoned um, issuer. Um, so that that's what I think about when you know when, when, I, when I think about the, the term IPO. Um, How about you? I mean, is there anything that that comes to mind or that uh, you've always had questions about?
0: Yeah, it's just, uh, like you said, it's kind of, uh, for public investors, there's not a lot of information on companies that are going IPO for the first time. I I mean, uh, I remember reading that Airbnb um, might, so this was uh, several months back, that they might go IPO. uh, but And I was trying to search for and their financial information, but there wasn't really anything readily available. It was just a lot of speculation on the actual numbers. So uh, it's kind of difficult to find those things. But uh, yeah, as you said, uh, when a company, I guess, is uh, getting ready to IPO, they file, uh, I believe it's an S1 document where it's uh, their initial numbers that you can see Uh, their initial financial information that you can see to kind of really take first crack at it. And it's kind of hard to really get a sense on how it would do in the future. But it's uh, like you said, it's a it's inherent risk with uh, going with companies that are going IPO.
1: Yeah, and even when you do a lot of work, I mean, sometimes like the the pricing is just is just too high. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think one example that you and I were talking about before uh, before he hopped on uh, the podcast was was Uber. Um, it was hot. It was a a hot startup. It was one of the the biggest early unicorns, um, and it was a very buzzy IP. Well, they it was a very buzzy fundraising process, and that fundraising process required them to basically value the company at progressively higher valuations. I don't remember the numbers anymore, but, you know, like, you know, they might do a series E at valuing the company 20 billion and a series F, you know, venture funding round at you know, like a 30 billion valuation or something like that. You know, I think it got to 80 billion or something because the last round was South bank, uh, which, uh, you know, we're going to talk about later on, but there's a very high number. And so there's a lot of pressure to um, have an IPO, which value the company even higher than that. Um, and if they didn't, there are various penalty mechanisms that kick in. So they really, really wanted to get a, a high IPO stock price, to value the company at a high valuation, and it, it was too much. Um, you know, Uber. I think you know, generally speaking, I think they've delivered on. You know, the, the criticism of Uber is that they they still don't make money. It's the software company, and they still somehow managed to torch a lot of money. Um, and setting COVID aside, um, you know, and it's it's yeah, I think people are critical of the stock for that reason. Um not critical about other tech stocks, but Uber and Lyft kind of get that scrutiny. But um the stock price is traded off from the IPO. Um I think now Uber is probably like thirty-three bucks. I remember thinking I actually don't remember remember the IPO price, but I remember thinking it was like fifty or sixty or something. Um was traded down. So um, you know, there was too much it was it was it was um priced too high. Um and Lyft actually kind of it was sort of funny because um, Lyft actually jumped the gun and IPO'd before Uber, if I recall correctly. And um, the fact that that IPO process did not go well, and we'll kind of talk a little bit about what it means for an IPO to go well, um, meant that it actually took some of the wind out of the sales for Uber. So Uber, you know, had to, they had to, even though they priced their IPO too high, that was still after a couple of cuts from you know where they were hoping to IPO the company. So, um, yeah, so there's always risk. I mean, you you have to, it's not it's not necessarily true that hot IPOs are going to trade up. Um, you know, now it feels like, yeah, you kind of read about, you know, every now and then there's a period in the market where it seems like every IPO doubles in the first day. It says, well, you know, that's true, but it's not always true. <laughs> it doesn't have to be true for an IPO. Um, so...
0: Um, so that's that. Yeah, yeah uh, not, you mentioned Uber. Uh, that was what last year, I believe, the IPO. I want to say
1: yes, yeah, twenty eighteen, maybe twenty eighteen, twenty. I want to say it's twenty eighteen. Okay.
0: Something I'm trying like to
1: remember.
0: <laughs> <you know>. But <laughs> yeah, uh, no, they, deli- one.
1: they said they were going to grow. They're going to continue growing revenue. They're going to be able to like pull their way from negative profitability to break even and. They kind of laid out a roadmap. Like Uber said, "Hey, we're going to do it by 2021." This is before COVID, and the stock ripped because, oh yeah, finally these guys are delivering what they said they were going to do in the IPO. But then COVID hit. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead.
0: Oh no, no, no! I was just about to say that. Uh, you know, uh, another another uh, IPO that we've had in like in the past decade is Facebook, but uh, that one has obviously ripped right from uh, its IPO.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm a goddamn schmuck. I remember when I was at 17, like a few days after the IPO, and I thought about buying it, and I just, you know, I I didn't. I mean, I didn't, and I'm that much poorer for it. That would be a 20x if you held it. Um, uh, but I remember around the time, like, um, the whole dialogue was, you know, mobile apps were starting to come out, and they kept on talking about mobile as a bit future for Facebook. And um, I think initially it didn't. It was really buzzy, but initially it kind of under was underwhelming, and the stock I think dropped to seventeen and that would have been the buy i remember i i, I do remember the moment that I was considering this, and I decided to pass I didn't do the work and um you know, boohoo <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, so that's facebook, but Facebook's ancient history at this point um, um you know what what are you you know i, I You know, Kentaro, a bunch of IPOs have you know kind of hit the slate right now. Um, What do what are they, and what do you think of them?
0: Um, So there, uh, there is an IPO that you and I we've been talking for a few weeks at this point, uh, just because of news of it coming out. And uh, the main one that we've been like really considering and really looking into is Snowflake. And Snowflake. It's basically a cloud provider, a uh, cloud computing provider, and what's really interesting about them is that uh, Snowflake they can do their own thing, like AWS, which is Amazon, or Azure, which is Microsoft, or Google Cloud, uh, but they can uh, they can compete with them uh, with their products, but they can also live in harmony with those other cloud providers, meaning like if you store data on AWS or uh, another provider, um, you can actually use the Snowflake platform to utilize uh, the data from those other cloud providers. And um, we use it at work, uh, the at, at my job, uh, and it's the general sentiment around Snowflake has been very good that it's very efficient it's very quick. Uh, the amount of work that you need to the amount of time for the work of like data remediation within snowflake uh, really cuts down on the amount of time you use to do that uh, rather than historically uh, using like a mainframe system or uh, like your on-site data data services or Whatnot. So uh I think I think it's a very interesting play. Uh we saw the S1 filing, uh can't remember how uh, last week, two weeks ago, uh we were talking about it, and their revenue from like twenty eighteen to twenty nineteen like jumped uh something absurd like under seventy percent, and their gross profit is up over two hundred and twenty percent. But uh, I think they're still running a loss, but they are a very new company at this point, like uh, w- those Silicon Valley techies. Uh, it's a very new company still, so they're still, I guess, working on getting that c- customer base and uh, just getting to a place where they can start providing profits. So uh, there's obviously still a lot of expenses that they're dealing with, but uh, what I have read on a lot of online forums as well is that people just have good things to say about Snowflake. So people who are very much in tune with uh, data analyzation, using data, data pooling, uh, or anything else. Uh, everyone, I have not read uh, bad re- many bad reviews about it. Most of it has been overwhelmingly good about it and I think that's important where if it's a product if it's uh, a company that's about to go IPO what do other people feel their product is like how do they believe that product is helping them and uh, with that does that mean that more companies are going to see the value in that and switch over to Snowflake uh, that's an important question I think to ask and for uh, from that i i just think that it's a very interesting thing to look at uh and, but we talked about like their uh market cap that they might open up with is like 20 billion or something like that which is uh, i think you said maybe 20x uh ev to sales
1: uh
0: you know it- <laughs> It, was yeah, two it was, weeks it was, I looked
1: at numbers. I, I, I think it is a question of like, because, because the company like Snowflake doubles every year. So I think it's a question of like, do you look at the trailing number, trailing revenue, look at forward revenue. But yeah, I, I remember thinking like, yeah, 20 billion in sales. And I want to say it was half a billion in revenues. So 40 times trailing sales and 20 times forward sales. So uh, that was kind of, that, that's kind of my rough numbers. Please, no one hold me to it. Um, I am <laughs> drinking. So this was two weeks ago. So it was a very long two weeks ago. But, but yeah, no, it, it's, uh, it is. And just for, for you folks who have looked at this, 20 times sales is a big hunk in valuation. This is a pricey stock. It may be worth it, though. And, we'll, you know, and that's why it's always worth to kind of check it out and we'll kind of talk through. How do you, how do you think about
0: a number like that? Um, yeah, so yeah, it, we don't know what we're going to do with it. But yeah, it, it is something... We are looking at uh just just yes, yeah. an F O I for everyone else that's listening yeah
1: uh this is not an investment advice but no i think it's a, it's a great it's a great example of like look i mean here's a product which um uh you know he had you know we you know you guys have had some familiarity with it and then on top of that the direct customer feedback was this is the base this is great um so customer delight you know whenever you see something a company that delights its customers that's a great sign um and you know, it doesn't mean you should run out right and buy the stock, but maybe it's time for you to start spending. You know, this is maybe a name you should focus in on. Like, you know, there's only five, so many hours in a day, but maybe this one is worth um, digging into, um, you know. And, you know, for example, Apple delights its customers, right? Tesla, you know, delights its customers, uh, for better or for worse. Um, you know, Peloton you know, delights its customers. So this is all a really, really, really good sign to, to see. And, you know, you kind of want to get that feedback. Um, you know, you got it directly from your direct experience and from your coworkers and talking to other people in the organization. Um, you know, you know, professional investors sometimes do things like they, like a lot of this, like, like IT infrastructure stuff. I mean, people will like go on, um, on LinkedIn and just like, you know, kind of cold call or, or reach out to like folks who might seem like they might use the product and might have an opinion or listed as one of their core, you know, one of their skills. And so, hedge fund guys will reach out to me like, yeah, what do you think of this new product? Or like, what do you think this stuff like? And they'll get direct feedback or they'll go on Reddit. You know, Reddit actually is a great source for you know, actually focused, concentrated, expert, filtered and ranked um, you know, feedback. Uh, so you know, that might be one way. Um, but then it's just learning what the business does. So you know, Kentaro mentioned there's a, the company, to, as part of the IPO process, uh, the company publishes what's called an S1 filing. Um, and that actually has a lot of information about the company. So, you know, one of which is a description of the company. What do they do when you read it and you're like, okay, does this make sense or not? And, you know, one of the, one of the concerns, so we've talked about um, a lot of cloud providers that there's the big three. And, um, you know, a lot of companies have reservations against, you know, giving, um, you, know, you know, having their infor- information with Amazon who might be competing with them and they don't really trust Amazon. And you know, Azure seems like a pretty decent product, and Microsoft seems inoffensive. Um, there's a third option, Google Cloud, but you know, a friend of mine was talking about how how much Google Cloud sucked. So, uh, like, he couldn't get nodes on demand, so he had to pay for a node full time and just keep it live. And you know, it was, I, I don't know what that means, but I mean, it sounds it sounds expensive and wasteful, and that's not what tech is supposed to be all about. So. You know, Snowflake allows you to kind of be independent of my read of Snowflake is that it allows you to be independent of these three knuckleheads. You can pick, you know, um, they buy capacity in all three cloud systems, and you know they take care of all the dirty work. Um, and uh, you know, you're not you're not beholden to Amazon or, or Microsoft or what have you. And that you know by itself seems like a pretty valuable service. Um, and then there are other there, there's a bigger picture of like their data. There's a whole data silo. I, I'm, I'm not smart enough to really talk about it or discuss it, but, you know, again, you know, as Cantona mentioned, data is moving off of your personal computer. It's moving off of, like, an AS4000 server sitting in some warehouse that the company owns, moving to the cloud, and, you know, all that. That's It's not just a matter of uploading this stuff to a giant Google Drive. You know, there, there's ways of organizing data and making sure people have you know who has data access, stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I think I think whatever stuff like does, it does, <laughs> it you know encompasses all these services. So there's more than just sort of a, you know, kind of an interstitial layer between you and and the uh, and the cloud provider. Um, but uh, but they, they are, you know, it, and and so how do you so how do you think about how do you think about these stocks? And I'm not going to claim to be uh, an expert here, but. Um, the first thing is, um, you know, what's their total addressable market? And I think the S1 will talk to you a little bit about that. Um, the other thing to look out for is that in addition to an S1 filing, companies will do, you know, what's called a roadshow presentation. And usually those aren't open to the general public, but a lot of companies will actually do so out of convenience, especially during COVID. Um, they'll put up, they'll do webcasts. Um, and so, um, you know, I, one one common uh, site is called RetailRoadshow.com, And that is, uh, belt post you know, roadshows from a bunch of different, um, you know, a bunch of different, uh, uh, companies. So I don't, I, I didn't see stuff like there, but it could be, and that's an easy way to where a company to see like the company explain itself and they talk about their business and why they're so good. And, you know, what's the total addressable market and why you should buy the stock. So it's, you know, it's a big marketing exercise, but they're pretty informative. Um, And and that's that. So anyway, so um, uh, in the S one, you get the shares outstanding, you get the net debt, and then someone will. You have to figure out the stock price. So you you know you'll uh, you have to ask your friendly equity capital markets investment banker for what the guidance is on stock price. But you know you take a number, you put it in. And you calculate the enterprise value, and you've got um, their trailing. Also, for the S1, you've got their trailing revenues. And for a tech company, people look at EV to revenue, fine, for better or for worse. You look at trailing revenue and forward revenue. So, one, one way to, you know one, you know, one set of folks who, who've done all that for you is um, for these tech companies, is uh, there's a website called publiccomps.com. Uh, so, that's public, and then public with a C and comms with a C, so they're two Cs. Um, and uh, let's check it out. They've got this dashboard. They've got an IPO dashboard, and they lay out, like, yeah, all these software companies, you know, how do they compare? And then when you look at it, it it's sort of rel- It's sort of like, yeah, you know, pager duty is at one end. It's up at the cheapest end, uh, which to me is still extraordinary multiple. But, you know, pager duty is um, it's, it's a less... Basically, if something goes down... PagerDuty will monitor and send you and send the IT team an alert. Right, so it's it's a useful service, but it's not as exciting as Zoom, which is like the highest valued stock out there, uh, even more than Shopify. And um, Zoom people are like, well, the ten is you know eleven billion dollars, and uh, they're going to take it all or whatever because you know no one uses Google Hangouts or Skype or you know any other video conferencing app- application. Um, and th- there's a perceived difference in quality. And so, you know, and also and these guys have spread the numbers for Snowflake in terms of some of their other metrics. So, you know, one, you know, there's a qualitative assessment of, you know, how, how good is the business? You know, is this, are we talking Zoom or are we talking p- pager duty? Uh, but there's also something that the venture capitalists have come up with called the rule of 40 and just the, uh, oh God. <laughs> I don't basically it's really stupid, right? They basically take revenue growth percentage and LTM free cash flow. You can calculate free cash flow from from yes one filing and you add them up. If it's more than 40, you should like the stock. Um I I kind of bang my head on the wall when there are these overly simplistic rules of thumb like that, but it's the only thing out there, so that's the only thing people can glom onto, so it works. And so you can also screen stocks. Um that way uh so for example zoom is off the charts in rule of 40 because they've been going revenue so so much and they're profitable while they're doing it right they're not spending a whole lot on sales and marketing they're not spending a whole lot on architecture so every time someone signs up for a zoom subscription it's kind of pure profit for them which is generally how soccer businesses work but uh zoom is probably one extreme um and Snowflake is in the top five in that respect. So it's it screens well. The story makes sense. Um, the feed customer feedback seems pretty good. Um, they are spending a lot on sales and marketing, but that's that's what every every one of these companies does when you look at their financials. Um, and so yeah, it'll probably be a hot IPO. And the question is, is it going to be priced so hot that you that there really isn't that much upside on the table for? uh for you like for example like you you have to ask yourself well if they price the damn thing at 20 times sales you know is it going to trade up to you know kind of the maximum you see in the market is like shopify you know 40 times sales so if it trades to shopify if it's perceived to be as good as shopify maybe the stock price will double so therefore it'll go from 20 times forward sales to 40 times forward sales right like shopify Um, how likely you could double your money. Great. Uh how likely is that? I I don't know enough about Shopify or, or or Snow to really opine. But that's kind of the thought process, uh, which you can think about how to play, you know, how, how I would think about, you know, doing, you know, getting involved in these IPOs. Obviously, there are hedge fund bros who are shaking their heads at our extreme lack of knowledge on something that they do every day. But uh um and this is this is the best our listeners are gonna get for free. How about that? for free internet content?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, uh that that was really informative. Uh, I remember you shared uh the public comps uh, website uh with me, and yeah that that was a lot of information that was provided and it, it was it was fantastic uh, i I'm looking forward to like lo- seeing more um information on snow but uh i guess for now um uh, i think they might what is it ipo either this month or next month something like that so it's it's pretty soon
1: yeah yeah usually after uh yeah if i remember look the, the calendars change around from the days that i was an investment banker but yeah they usually don't ipo stuff in august because you know people are at the hamptons and they don't want to be bothered with IPOs. so but labor day in theory people are butts are back in you know in seats and uh uh, they should launch, and the you know, roadshow be a couple of days, and um, they'll, you know, they'll price the IPO. And we'll talk a little bit about the mechanics of an IPO, um, a little bit. But um, you know, why don't we why don't we go through the rest of the hot IPOs out there? What, what else are you looking at?
0: Uh, so I haven't really looked at this one. I know you've looked at this one, and that's Unity. Uh, and Unity, um, I. Believe they're a gla- game platform maker. Um, I don't know if you have anything more to say. I, I'm pretty sure you looked at their S one as well. I,
1: you know, I, I looked at it in the sense that I pulled it up and I got busy and I didn't, I didn't look at it. So um, I, um, I thought about like, who do I know in the game development world who could help me out here? And I just sort of dropped it there and I got tied up on some other stuff. So I apologize. I did not dig into Unity, but but the the, the story is that basically. Like, listen, people who are doing, you know, mobile games have have evolved quite a bit. They're pretty high end now. Uh, But um, game development takes a lot of resources. And so um, an increasing trend is, uh, you know, um, basically licensing an engine um, to instead of coding yours from scratch and rolling your own. Um, you uh, you outsource it to like, an ep- like Epic Games, a so Fortnite, you all play Fortnite or some of you play Fortnite. Um, their claim to fame was actually before that was the Unreal game engine. So if you like first person shooters because you're that kind of violent t- type of individual, um, you know, there was the Quake engine, there was the um, the Unreal engine and you'd see people do their development work licensing one, one of those two, right? So. Um, that was sort of the granddaddy of this business model. Um, and Unity does that, but for mobile devices, and that's important because there are a lot of mobile devices out there, like bug testing an app on with like you know all the different like there there, there are like a hundred different iPhone variations between different models and different you know have they upgraded to the latest iOS. and then Android is even worse. The fragmentation problem is off the scale. So, I have not read the IPO. I imagine that Unity solves this problem for you um, by building a kind of a simple one engine that works and then will, you know, compile on all this other stuff and run stuff without bugs. Um, I remember reading they had like 50% of like the mobile gaming share. Um, So that's interesting. So to me, this is a bet on like mobile gaming spend. Um, And you know, and, and, and indie develop, you know, mobile games are still more of an indie development world as opposed to uh, for y'all playing, you know, AAA, you know, computer games. I mean, those are like almost movie productions, right? You have a studio, it's got a budget of $100 million and they crank out an amazing product, but they can only do it, you know, once every five years, that sort of thing. And so, you know, a lot of mobile games don't have that kind of, you know, th- th- it's just not like that. So, you know, kind of the lighter, quicker, more flexible, uh, quicker to market. These are all valuable things um, that I think apply to Unity and should make the business attractive um, and should make the IPO hot. And then, yes. then that gets us right to the, the Snowflake question of like, well, did they price it too high? And there's not a lot of, you know, what are the upsides left on the table for you as someone buying into the IPO? So all that, I don't know. <laughs> someone else is going to do the work. Yeah,
0: you bring a good point on, uh, well, since we only have so many hours in a day, we got to focus our time on something, and so we haven't really spent time on Unity, uh, more on Snowflake in that matter. Not all of our time, because we're doing other things as well, but uh, Unity just kind of isn't in our radar right now. But I feel like uh, one of the things that we should maybe touch up upon on Unity is how... Apple, they are kind of playing around with their app store in terms of what they allow to be on their app store. So, for example, uh, I think it was uh, I think they're not allowing anything to be uh, any games that have an Unreal Engine. I I don't remember if it's Unreal Engine or something else, but yeah, they're not allowing anything that has an Unreal Engine on their app store. So Fortnite was actually taking out and they put in PUBG instead, but uh, yeah, that, that's that is also I think a consideration that needs to be made in terms of since that if the game gaming platform for some reason was all of a sudden not allowed on the Apple App Store or I, I don't really see uh, I, I don't know about the Android uh, App Store if. Uh, there'll be any problems with that, but um, I think the Apple App Store has a lot more users anyway. So if they're not allowed on the Apple App Store, then that really, I think, eats into their numbers as well. So it's, it's also uh, figuring out where in the pipeline they are going to be used and how uh, if that pipeline was somehow disrupted, uh, what will happen to them? Yeah,
1: it's um, it's a bigger question for mobile gaming. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, the fight over, so Unreal is owned by Epic, and Epic is basically so That just to back up a little bit, so the Google App Play Store and the Apple App Store, um, they basically take a 30% cut of any billings run through your app. And so... And yeah, it kind of adds up. So, um, you know, for example, Netflix—you are not allowed to sign up for Netflix, sign up a Netflix account through the apps. You have to do it offline, and then, uh, or you know, all, all, you know, through your desktop computer. And that's because they don't want to pay Apple a thirty percent cut. So, Apple is trying to break this thirty percent stranglehold. Um, they're picking a fight with Apple. They're litigating it, and um, they've potentially breached the. Uh, you know, the user license that they have for the app store, um, and so Apple yanked their, their access. So we'll see how that process plays out. It's sort of an antitrust issue. Um, but, um, for all you legal nerds out there, uh, but yeah, that, that's ongoing. Um, so far as I can tell, like, so long as, you know, you, you agree to pay the king 30%, then, you know, you won't have any problems. But, uh, um, but that is, uh, that is a pretty meaty cut of, uh, you know, um, someone's billings but that's why apple stock trades is on been on fire and google is you know kind of a less good version of that but uh are, their stock is doing pretty well too
0: um so, so uh if we could talk uh, about like another another ipo that might come out we don't know if it's going to come out um and that is uh airbnb and I, I know I remember that you had some reservations about Airbnb, but uh, so they have not filed uh, an S one, I believe, yet. Uh, I think they were supposed to IPO sometime this year, but because of Corona, everything just kind of went down the shitters. Uh, and so I think they were holding off. No one's traveling. No one is uh, booking like hotels or whatnot. Uh, I, I think uh, so. The business model of Airbnb is. Uh, I've never used Airbnb, but from a, a very quick understanding of it, it's basically people rent out like their unused rooms or something like that, and uh, they can get money from uh, those, obviously, people who are uh, staying in their unused rooms, and Airbnb takes a cut. They're kind of like a platform for that, so it's been replacing a lot of hotel uh, Hotel stayers, uh, so sorry. Hotel stayers have been replacing hotels with Airbnb, but uh, yeah. How do you feel? What do you think about Airbnb? So, um, I mean, it's a real business. Um, I, I,
1: I think my reservation at Airbnb was. I knew a guy there who's now. Um, uh, I was on the other side of a deal with a guy who is now an officer at Airbnb, and he was an asshole to me. So, um, you know, fuck that guy. That's why I didn't like Airbnb. <laughs> but to that aside, I, um, uh, you know, basically, look, it's, an, it's a real alternative. I've used Airbnb. Um, I am extraordinarily, you know, frugal. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes I don't want to pay for a high-end hotel. Uh, I'm not going to use the, the features. I'm just going to be there to go to sleep and wake up and you know, other other people want to pay for experience of like renting out a treehouse or what have you. So, um, you know, it's a real it's it's a real market. Um, it's a real business. Um, they make money, or well, they they were making money. Um, you know, the issue during COVID was number one, yeah, everyone canceled their bookings, which is you know means that they're not getting revenue. The issue is, for them was um, now people wanted refunds for their bookings, and Airbnb had to come up with the money to. Uh, fund those, um, you know, to to refund it. So, so long story short, with all these tech companies and most companies too, when you prepay for something, it's not like they take the money and put it in a bank account and hold it, and then when you're done with the when when you're done with your stay and check out, then they release the money. No, no, no. The minute you give them the money, they spend it on something else. So, if they if they're in a situation where they need to do a huge amount of refunds all at once, they have to look around and get get cash. I mean, like where do you get cash? Um, And so they had a moment of crisis. They did an emergency financing with some some hedge fund guys, and um, um, they got the money, and they're fine now. And I saw on Twitter the other day someone put out a a comparison of like how occupancy of hotels remains depressed, but Airbnb has recovered very well. And part of that's because people don't want to stay in a big hotel where they have to share an elevator. They just want to stay in a single family house, right? Which is you know, and that's where you go to for Airbnb. So. you know, so they're back, and yeah, there's uh, they, they, they were they had the same pressure as Uber, where they had to file for an IPO in a given year. In this case, it's 2020. Um, otherwise, bad things start to happen. Um, yeah, maybe not so bad, but you know, just this, you know, stuff happens. And um, um, so they really want IPO. So they're they're the, the I think they filed an S one confidentially. Uh, so there may be a public filing coming out soon. Um, Something called the SPAC, a special purpose uh, acquisition company, reached out to them to kind of preempt an IPO process, and they got shot down. Um, but we'll see. Um, what is, what is uh, uh, an Airbnb IPO worth? I don't know, because I haven't seen any numbers. So I guess we'll have to hold this question until, they, uh, um, until such, day, such time that the IPO is actually filed and we can actually see their
0: financials. so eric uh with that kind of concluded, so those are kind of like the three hot like ipos that we have like heard about and um kind of are looking into but uh i guess in summary so how do ipos actually work like how does a company go about uh, doing an ipo okay well now we shall begin what are the
1: mechanics of an ipo process right so Long story short, you are a company. You have owners. The owners want to sell, you know, sell stock publicly, right? So then you kick off an IPO process. The first thing you do is you hire an investment banker or a bunch of investment bankers, and um, there's something called a beauty pageant. Um, I know, I know. This, these were all coined. These were terms coined by the patriarchy decades ago, but that's what it's called. Um, and and you that, you pick an underwriter, right? You pick an investment bank to be the quote unquote underwriter. So they basically will manage the IPO process for you. Um, And um, as part of that, you also hire lawyers, you prepare an S-1 filing, and the investment banks will help you um, create the presentation that we talked about, uh, the the roadshow presentation, and then they also um, will start to line up large investors uh, to to, to basically make up the roadshow. The roadshow is you go into the management of the company, goes on the road and basically sells their story, so you have money managers out there, hedge funds, mutual funds, what have you, um, and try to get them interested and in, in buy shares in the IPO. So um, that process is, um, you know, it, it's the, um, the roadshow process. And at the end of the roadshow process, the investment bank goes around all of them and says, OK, well, how much do you want? So this process is called book building or building the book. And so they go around and say, OK, at this IPO process, how, at this IPO price, how much are you going to buy? And this IP, and, and so it's almost like everyone kind of submits tiers of, of you know, kind of indications of interest at different, um, you know, different prices. So, and then based on that, the underwriter picks a price, that's the IPO price, and that's where, you know, so that's where the, the deal is set. So, um, the... You know, while the system ostensibly is based on feedback from investors, um, I think anyone who's been looking at IPOs for the past, you know, 50 years realized that the process is deliberately inefficient, right? It's actually not, the process is not engineered to maximize the price for the company in the IPO. And the actual goal, and there are, you know, people are pretty open about it, is to have an IPO that trades well. And what that means is that the stock price trades up after the IPO. And the easiest way to do that is to price the IPO cheap. So, you know, I, when I was, you know, into doing this stuff, I mean, we had, um, there was a concept called IPO discount. So if um, you had company A, B, and C that already had public stocks and you figured out the valuation multiples and you, company D, was coming along for the IPO, um, very commonly, you would price it uh, like a 15% discount. And like this, the mental misery associated with the 15% is unbelievable. But, you know, basically, that was the idea of this you treat, People bought into your IPO because you were cheap relative, cheap compared to your comps, right? If you didn't have any other differentiating story. Um, and in doing so, you kind of guarantee that, like, yeah, you know, in the first day, you should trade up, you know, at least 15%. You know, it's, it's, it's not quite 15%, but, you know, bear with me. Um and then um the the other the other thing, uh and, and so if you follow that playbook, you start to realize that oh, this is why we see a lot of IPO ripping, you know, IPO rips on the first day. Like, you know, it's up 40% the first day. It's not up fifteen percent, it's up forty percent, it's up eighty percent, it's up hundred percent, um, as some of the more recent IPOs. And uh, this stuff which we saw in the original dot com mania, and you see it periodically. Look, hot IPOs, everybody wants a piece of the allocation. They don't get enough allocation. There is a scarcity in an IPO. Um, They're only going to sell a small portion of the ownership of a company. So if it's something like Beyond Meat, where people think it's like the next, the greatest thing since sliced bread, they didn't actually sell that many shares in the IPO, but everybody wanted a piece of the action. And so they bid up stock price to um, crazy levels. and so that was a big rip. And you know, if IPOs rip, consistently rip after, on the first day, then the natural question is, are, is the IPO leaving money on the table? Right? So people say, hey, you know, you're systematically underpricing IPOs, and that's actually cheating, you know, shortchanging you know, the, the sellers. Right? The people who are selling stock to the company, they could have gotten a better price, but the invested banks made them take an inferior price. And so there's a lot of criticism of the IPO process from that perspective. Um, there's a venture capitalist named Bill Gurley from Benchmark, formerly Benchmark Capital. And his Twitter seems to have to be about ranting about the, you know, about the problems with IPOs. And, you know, they're, they're real problems. So I think he's not, you know, I think, I think these, are, these are well-founded criticisms. Um, not least of which are sleazy invest in bank actions, right? So... Um, everyone, you know, um, yeah, Invested Banks are everyone's favorite whipping boy. Uh, I haven't worked in investment Bank a long time, so um, why not, right? Let's get it. All the cool, cool, cool kids are doing it. So um, the first thing is that, you know, a lot of these companies don't have a lot of operating history and whatnot. So there's a lot of opportunity to really pump the stock with promises, and then the company underperforms, and the stock price, you know, trades terribly. So that's kind of investment Bank crime fault. Well, Fault, if you will, number one, you know. Number two is you know they used to charge a really excessive fee on the IPO. They charged a seven percent fee, it was market, uh, and they tried to maintain it. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, and there's not many things you pay a seven percent commission for. Um, you know, maybe you sell your house, but you know that also is kind of a cartel. Um, the, you know, so that's that's a lot. Uh, the other was. Um, Something called a green shoe, right? So, basically, long story short, the investment banks will make more money if the stock trades up, which means that they have an incentive to price the IPO cheaply at a cheap price. Uh, So, people, if you sometimes see criticism of the green shoe, and that's what they're talking about. Um, Basically, um, the IPO price is the IPO price, and um, if the stock trades up, then. (laughs) <laughs> it would be great. That means that there's more demand. So wouldn't it be great if there was more stock to sell into that? And um, basically, if you look in the S-1 filing, there are words called over allotment options. That's a green shoe. So basically, if the stock trades well. The investment banks can sell more of the stock from the sellers. Um, they can you know, upsize the deal, quote unquote, 15% usually. And that's... There's a reason for that, but the way you implement it is you, the investment bank is actually creating a naked short in the stock. So, which sounds terrible. Um, investment bank naked short. Oh my God, people fall their 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 seats. Um, but it's uh, oh God. Okay, <laughs> let me let me take thirty seconds to explain. Right. So. Suppose you want to create a, a mechanism to protect the stock from falling on the IPO, so the stock price from falling on the, after the IPO. Well, the way to do that is that the investment bank will actually support the stock, right? So they'll basically buy the stock in the market so that if people punt their IPO shares, then um, someone there's a buyer, right? If there's no buyer, the stock price will go down until there's a buyer. But if there's a buyer at the IPO price, then that will, quote-unquote, support the deal at the IPO price. It shouldn't trade worse than that. Um, and, you know, that, that's maybe you say to yourself, that's why the underwriters are paid 7%, um, and that would be a reasonable uh, criticism, but the um, reasonable position to take. But what the underwriters actually do is that they basically um, overbook, right? If you ever, you know, it's like airlines, they overbook, they sell more tickets than they have seats. That's kind of what the investment banks do. And so... If there are sellers in the first day, then the invested bank is basically not really. They're actually not buying shares in the open market. Um, They're they're basically um, uh, reducing the amount that they oversold the stock by. I I think I think if I I'm I'm messing this up, but it's basically it's it makes sense once you get to the mechanics, but I'm not doing it justice. And that's if the stock price trades down. But if they're naked short and the stock price trades up, well, then that's what the green shoe over allotment option is actually for, right? So this all kind of, you have to get into the mechanics of how an IPO works. And the investment banks are kind of in for some grief as they relate to that. But um, it kind of serves a purpose. It does kind of make sense. I don't have a better alternative, so I'm not really complaining. Um, That's that. Okay, so. Um, that's some of the, the 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 behind the scenes stuff. Um, but how do you get in on an IPO? Say say there's an IPO which your company really like, it's a hot stock. You think the IPO, IPOs are all on fire. Um, how do you do that? So a lot of hedge fund bros will do what they'll do is that um, they'll lean on their relationships with the investment banks to say, okay, give me an allocation. I want to I want to buy some shares at the IPO price because I think it'll trade up. And that's all they're doing, right? They're trading. You know, I've had friends who. Basically, would call around and say, try to determine if this was a hot IPO. And if mm-hmm. it was a hot IPO, they want to get as big an allocation as they can so they could flip it on the first day of trades. That's all They were, they were playing a flip game. Um, so that was, that happens. Uh, that's a way to make money without a whole lot of risk. Um, and that's it. But if you're not a hedge fund, how do you get an allocation? How do you participate in an IPO? Um, that's really hard. That's really, really hard. Um, you basically, um, you know, if, if Morgan Stanley, okay, well, uh, you basically have to be a high net worth investor. And so, like, if you're a big investor, if you have a lot of money, Fidelity, for example, and you tell them you want to look at IPOs, you will start to get calls of, like, hey, we have an IPO, we'll get a piece, how much of it do you want? Um, and they'll call you up and tell you that. Or more traditionally, um, if Morgan Stanley is doing the deal and you have a high net worth account at Morgan Stanley, then you might get um, allocations in an IPO or, or Goldman Sachs or what have you, right? You know, or JP Morgan or UPS, right? There are other, the investment banks all have kind of high net worth divisions and they get, you know, they can get a distribution as part of um, or Merrill Lynch. I'm sorry if I left those guys out. Um, you know, that's another way to get kind of allocations in an IPO. Um, and you know, but that's actually really hard if you're not a high net worth individual. Um, so one thing which has emerged over the past 15 years is a kind of getting in on a pre-IPO basis. So um, there are companies like, um, uh, it used to be called second market. They're not around anymore, but the modern versions of it are like Forge, Global. Um, oh dear. But basically you can buy shares in private companies and venture capital startups. And then those might go for an IPO, um, down the road. And so you basically bought in at a discounted valuation for that, probably, hopefully, um, on a pre-IPO basis. So that's another way to kind of get involved in these things. Um, And, uh, you know, but I will say, though, that if you thought that you didn't get a lot of information in in an IPO process in this pre-IPO stuff, you get none. It is a pure blind crapshoot that um, you have no idea if you're paying a cheap, cheap price or expensive price. All you're doing is you're kind of leveraging, you're assuming the people, uh, you're, 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 you can see where other people invested and that'll give you a little bit of information, but uh, you really have no information. So, you know, that's one way to do this, but it's really, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. Um, I've looked at a bunch of these and I've passed on startups, which I've used, and apps that I've used, stuff like that, because there was information. And you basically have to know someone at the company to kind of tell you the story and kind of give you you know, kind of yeah, all the stuff that you get as part of an IPO. Um, you need someone to kind of like, you know, provide that story to you. So, um, so that's that. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I mean, maybe, you know, your good friends with the venture capitalists and they, they've got some scuttlebutt in the company and, you know, they can help you, you know, and that they'll they can guide you there. But um, you know, other than that, it, it is really hard. So um, I'd say that's um, that's to me like you know, people. I talk about IPOs are great, but the reality is that most of us will only be able to buy it at the open when it trades publicly for the first time. Um, and if it trades up, you're trading, you're paying a higher price that way than if you did if you were part of the IPO. It's higher price than if you got in a pre-IPO basis. So wouldn't it be great to get in earlier? And those are kind of two two ways that I you know I can think of.
0: I think that was great. So, that was a lot of information. Um, so yeah, that that's pretty much what we think about IPOs, but we kinda wanna do a post on like some market updates. So uh, I know you brought up SoftBank before we started recording. Uh, so, what happened with SoftBank this week? <laughs> yeah, these motherfuckers. Okay, so
1: um, long story short, just the tech stocks have all been ripping and they've gone parabolic. So Tesla, you know, my bet, my bet more is is one, but all of these guys have just been have been going through the roof. Like all the all the SaaS stocks that we were talking about earlier on publiccoms.com. Um, all the software names. Um, and it turns out that, um, so I think last week, um, oh, okay, so, so, and the speculation has been a lot of the stock price action has been driven by buying related to options activities. So I think Kenton and I were planning on talking about options for a bit. We never got around to it, but long story short, um, options are a way of making a leveraged kind of specific bet on the stock price uh but there are small dollars and you know instead of maybe instead of paying two thousand dollars for a tesla stock i could pay fifty dollars uh to make an options bet and it's a different kind of bet than buying the stock but you know if i have you know so many budgeted dollars i can buy more options i could at buying the stock and so um you know what people were doing was that they're buying these really risky i'm gonna throw some terms up there out of the money short dated calls uh, so basically, they're, they're betting that the stock price is going to go up a lot this week, right? So it's a super narrow, risky bet. But there was a lot of this kind of betting activity. And what turns out, what people have discovered is that if you get paid a lot of people to bum rush the options market by buying these, again, small dollar, but out of the money, short-dated, in other words, cheap call options, in other words, betting on the upside, what happens is that the people— who are selling options to you, um, you know, th- it's not like they, uh, they can, you know, they don't want to be outright, expo- they don't want to be exposed to the market base. So they, what they do is they, they'll sell you the option. Now they're short the option and they'll hedge it. And they hedge it through something called Delta hedging. So if you, I don't want to go through details, but if y'all look up Black-Scholes options hedging, this is the simple version of Delta hedging. And basically what you do is you go and you buy, you know, you know, stock in the company, the underlying stock. The option is always in reference to an underlying stock. The way you delta hedge, a call option is you, among other things, you buy a ratio of, you know, certain ratio of shares in the um, stock of the company. And that changes based on a bunch of inputs. Well, if you bum rush the options market, you suddenly force the, the market maker, the, the option dealers, if you will, to suddenly do a lot of delta hedging which means that they have to buy a lot of shares, and under certain circumstances, uh, it's a low float stock, or there's a heavily shorted stock um, that'll trigger um, an upward price spiral. Uh, could so if it's it could be short squeeze, it could be something else, but um, it could be a combination of all those. But you know, in other words, if you bum rush the call options market with a limited budget, you can actually get somebody else to buy a lot of stock in the company and thereby drive up the stock price. All right, so if, they, if these guys have to buy stock in any given moment, they have these sellers, if there are not sellers, well, the price has to be higher. So that will raise stock price. Um, and we saw this playbook run again and again and again and again on Tesla. Um, and then last week, um, you know, Citadel, one of the options guys, Disclosed. I forget how they said it or wh- what channel they said it, but it was all over Twitter. They said basically, yeah, there's a large institutional buyer running this strategy. And so it's not the Robin Hooders. It's not retail guys, it's not the Wall Street Bets people where this stuff was first publicized. Um, but it's actually some large pot of money is doing this. And it turns out that large pot of money was SoftBank. So SoftBank is, if you don't know, it's this... Um, um, I guess uh, I guess you call him a Zainichi Korean guy in Japan, who uh, runs a, a, a public company called SoftBank, and they invest in they basically invest in a lot of things, um, and um, they've made some really good bets like Alibaba and Yahoo Japan. Um, they made some really bad bets, um, and um, one of those bad bets were like WeWork and Uber. Um, so they've been, a, they've been kind of a crazy tech investor. They've been late stage venture capital rounds, outbidding everybody else and doing crazy things. And as it turns out, they're not done doing crazy things despite having lost a lot of money on WeWork and I don't know, Uber and Airbnb and what have you. Um, but they basically ran this, they, they basically plowed um, $30 billion into the strategy where they bought tech stocks and then they bought a ton of options on those tech stocks and it was and that is probably the best explanation for why all these tech stocks have been on this gigantic rip like this 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 unbelievable rip through all of august um and um that's fine except that this kind of sounds like to me like market manipulation by softbank and by the way softbank is a public company it's a japanese public company it's got shareholders uh, who a lot of you know a lot of japanese individuals like retail investors on SoftBank shares and they don't want to own a hedge fund which is driving what's called a gamma squeeze but the whole process the cycle i described is called a gamma squeeze i don't want to go through it but um you can you can google it um you know if there's market borderline market manipulation it's maybe not really what a public company is supposed to do like run like a stevie hedge fund But they hired a bunch of skeevy hedge fund guys from Deutsche Bank, and those guys, you know, they leopards don't change their spots. So um, you know, they saw an opportunity, ran with it. So far, they've made money on it. But, you know, now that they've been exposed and have exited, allegedly have exited a lot of their positions. And, you know, if they were the big buyer, the big crazy buyer driving up tech valuations, what happens when they stop buying? And does that mean that tech stocks come down from their crazy valuations, from arguably manipulated stock prices and manipulated upwards into unbelievable territory? So that's what we're going to find out this week. Um, you know, um, you know if if that's been the the big action driving up stock prices, um, you know, does that when they stop, does that let air out of the market for these tech stocks and? you know, for the back half of last week, I mean, it has. Like, all these tech stocks were down, like, six, you know, six eight percent each across the board Thursday and Friday. There was a little rebound that, that market closed on Friday. Um, people have said, well, it was the options dealers, you know, cleaning up their stuff, and so that put a bid back in the market, so the stock price went back up. But, but long story short, South Bank is not doing this anymore. Um, and so... Uh, this was a hidden hand driving up stock prices then um when they stop what happens is it look out below so i think a lot of um a lot of people who are been conditioned to buy the dip um you know if the stock market is down five percent the winning strategy is just buy it it'll go back up i mean yeah it's worked it'll work up until right up until day it doesn't work and uh you know maybe we're going to enter a period where it doesn't work and you know, stock prices, stock market was down two days in a row, three days in a row last week, and the Fed did not jump in. You know, Jerome Powell did not come in saying, hey, you know, we're going to support the market. We're going to do all kind of stuff. didn't say anything. So um, I, um, uh, which, whereas in the past six months, every time stock markets wavered a little bit, they've kind of, you know, said something that was accommodating to the market. And they haven't done it this time around. And so. Maybe there'll be a correction in tech stocks. Tech correction meaning they go down. So, so we'll see. And you know, if they go down a lot, then that'll impact the IPO market for the tech names that we were talking about earlier, Snowflake and Unity. Um, I Means people who are chasing these like stratospheric names because stocks never go down. Uh, maybe maybe they do go down.
0: So I guess we're gonna find out tomorrow morning. I like how, um, well, at, at the end, you also mentioned that um, th- Thursday, Friday, it was a huge, uh, huge downward sp- spiral for a lot of these tech companies, and uh, I just kind of want to put it out there. It's it's really easy to talk about winning strats, uh, stocks, or uh, whatnot when the market is doing well, but it's a lot more difficult to talk about things when uh, things are not going well. And I think that's what we want to emphasize is that uh, even though things may not be going well, uh, I think you mentioned it before uh, about Jim Cramer always saying uh, that there's always a bull market somewhere. And what we try to think about is, well, where is our opportunity during these phases? Because uh, stocks, they may not always go up, but there's there's got to be an opportunity somewhere else. Yeah,
1: and the best way to be in a position to even look at those opportunities is to, you know, not be getting destroyed on you know an area you're overexposed already. So you know, it's always you know I think um, people talk about um, you know risk management, and I, I tell people the best way to, make, to learn risk management is just like you know go to a blackjack table and like put money down and you realize, like, for me, I realize, like, yeah, you know, I think differently when I'm, like, deeply in the hole. I and mean, I think differently if I'm, like, ahead. And so I try to avoid being in the hole. I've been very unsuccessful at that. But, you know, um, you know it, does, it does have avoiding, avoiding bad deeds um, or, you know, basically the, the concern here is that tech stocks have a long way to fall because valuations are so high. So... Maybe you want to manage that risk by lightening up and taking some money off the table. And, um, you know, we're going to be entering kind of a weird period. And maybe this is not the time to buy the dip. So, um, yeah, anyway, that, that's how I think about it.
0: And with that, I think uh, we'll call uh, call it the episode. So I am your co host, Kentaro. And I'm your other co host, Eric. Have a good night. I